It's Tuesday, May the 25th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today, which means I have the high privilege and distinct honor of introducing the stars of our show, three Hoover Institution senior fellows whom we jokingly refer to as Goodfellows. Beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Second Goodfellows, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is a former presidential national security advisor. We're proud to have him here at the Hoover Institution as the Fawad and Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill, John, Neil, and special guest. Great to be with you. And our third Goodfellow, Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil is also a renowned historian and author. His latest book, Boom, the Politics of Catastrophe, came out three weeks ago. Neil, I confess, I hit rock bottom on Saturday night, flipping around the channels, and there you were on C-SPAN talking about doom. You cannot escape your doom. That's what I keep telling people. <laughs> so, gentlemen, we have a, a treat for you today. Our topic is going to be race and inequality and critical race theory. And joining us in conversation for the next hour is Glenn Lowry. Dr. Glenn Lowry is a distinguished visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. As an academic economist, he's published in multiple areas, including the economics of race and inequality. As a prominent social critic and public intellectual, writing mainly on the themes of racial inequality and social policy, Dr. Lowry has published more than 200 essays and reviews in journals and public affairs in the United States and abroad. Glenn Lowry, welcome to Goodfellows. Thanks, Bill. And fellas, good to be with you. Well, you're now a fellow fellow, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> let's begin the conversation with the story out of North Carolina, Glenn. Uh, this involves Nicole Hannah-Jones, the investigative journalist who won the Pulitzer Prize for her work on the 1619 Project in the New York Times. Reportedly, she was offered a tenured position as the night chair in race and investigative journalism at the UNC Chapel Hill, uh, where H.R. McMaster has two degrees, I might add. Go Tar Heels. The school's board of trustees reportedly decided not to grant her tenure. And then all hell broke loose, Glenn. It led to a protest at the board's next meeting, protesters singing, we will not be moved, we, we shall overcome. And then, Glenn, the Atlantic weighed in. I'd like to read you what the Atlantic wrote about this. They said, quote, for the past five years, conservatives have been howling about the alleged censoriousness of the American left, in particular on college campuses. But the denial of tenure to Hannah Jones shows that the real conflict is over how American society understands its present inequalities. Glenn, can you unwrap the UNC Chapel Hill story for us and explain what exactly is going on here? Uh, all right, Bill, I'll give it a shot. Um, I think there's Hannah Jones, the 1619 Project, and her credibility as a, as a quote unquote scholar. Presumably, you want someone who's a tenured member of your faculty, if you're a serious university, to be a scholar. So there's that. What they're going to say is it's a professional school. And uh, journalistic, you know, professional practice is the credential. It's, it's not like an academic department or something like that. But if you consider the uh, contention, I mean, this is not a, a secret. This is something that's been uh, kicked about quite a bit of serious historians like Sean Willens and others who are saying factual errors and errors of interpretation. And uh, this has been vetted. And, and I don't think you know, she necessarily comes out looking so good in, in the mix. So if a set of trustees were to have been confronted with the prospect of appointing her as a tenured member of the faculty, and some among them had been paying attention to this 
disputation about the credibility of what was written in the 1619 project. I mean, after all, we are talking about the interpretation of the American founding here. We're, we're, we're talking about whether or not the enterprise, which has come to be the United States of America, was rooted in a desire to perpetuate slavery. That was the point of contention. So you get that one wrong. Let's suppose you get that one wrong. And then a board of trustees doesn't want to make you a tenured member of their faculty. I'd say it's their call. You know, you know, Glenn, could I, could I ask you to comment further just on the manipulation of history perspective as a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill, who had the great, you know, just the, the great honor of studying under Don Higginbotham, the author of the, of the great book, The War of American in Independence. I see just a, a general danger in those who seek to manipulate history for a presentist agenda. I had a, a recent small group discussion with Stanford students about this, and I made the analogy between the 1619 Project and, and the myth of the lost cause and how you know, historians covered over the fact that that uh, the South seceded to preserve slavery uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and tried to portray at times slavery as a, as a benign or even a benevolent institution, except uh, rather than, than an abhorrent institution that cut against uh, the, the principles on which our country was founded. So, Glenn, what, what is your view broadly of the danger of manipulating history? Because I think it's it's accepted too readily these days. Well, I'm not a historian. I gather I'm in the presence of an historian, but I'm not a historian. Um, I guess there's an answer that goes something like every generation is rewriting the story, that the facts underdetermine the narrative. Now, there's more than one narrative consistent with the same set of historical facts. We ought to be able to agree that we will actually be constrained by the facts, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what the story is going to be. Uh, it is quite the 1619 Project self-consciously cast as an effort to retell the story, recenter the story, make slavery the center of the story. And I suppose one could undertake such a project and still be constrained by the facts. And so therefore perhaps not be, you know, in violation of some uh you know minimal but i'm saying that's minimal i think the fight is over the story the, the fight is over the story itself uh is the country rooted in slavery i mean that that it seems to me to be what is uh is at issue and uh i mean i have a different narrative if you want to hear my narrative i'm happy to tell it to you but i'm i want to say emancipation is the is the uh uh slavery was a commonplace of human culture I mean, the, the uh, founding fathers didn't invent slavery. I mean, if you want to talk about a European influence in the global context of a commercial, you know, centuries long kind of transformation of global uh, economic relations and all of that, I mean, we could talk about that, but that doesn't really go to the founding. Slavery was a commonplace. The thing that distinguishes uh, the American story is the emancipation. It's abolition. It, it's, it's Lincoln linking up to Jefferson. It's it's the liberty of African America. I mean, find another wholesale serfdom disenfranchisement, which in the course of a couple of centuries goes from chattel slavery to LeBron James, Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey. It's a remarkable story. We're 10 times richer than the average uh, Nigerian at the median. We're the most powerful people of African descent on the planet. We're free. That's the story. That would be my story. But uh, 
you know, I'm sorry if I get a little well, bit. Well, you know, I know, I know, I, I, I love, I love hearing your perspective, and and of course, we we can all acknowledge it wasn't without setbacks, right? It wasn't without the the failure of Reconstruction and and you know the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and separate but equal. But it is a story of of progress and st- a story of progress rooted in what our founders knew from the beginning, right? That our republic would require constant nurturing. So I I, I really think that it's. Glenn, I'm so glad to 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 hear your perspective on these issues these days, because you provide a critical but a positive view that people can use to to improve our country, right? And, and to and to to really realize uh, the the principles that were laid down at the founding, principles that I think ultimately, as you mentioned, uh, made that 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 abhorrent institution uh, unsustainable. So isn't I appreciate the question, isn't the question here whether we're allowed to tell Glenn's story. Um, it's not really about other two competing stories, which uh, there are. And it's really, are we going to settle this one based on facts and evidence? Uh, or are you even allowed to tell the opposing story? The 1619 Project was just promulgated by the Department of Education in official materials that are, are they gonna be the basis for instruction in the schools. Um, it's not about scholarship. You look what passes for scholarship in history, you know, peer-reviewed history journals, and you can, you know, part of all the scholarship you want that's way far to the left of the 1619 Project, and even less uh, based on facts. So the, the the question, you know, good luck to you, but uh, <laughs> there's sort of an official line, and it's being harder and harder to deviate from that official line. Hey, Neil and I are just really glad that we got two economists to talk about history for as long as we have. <laughs> you guys are way more interesting than we are. Okay, I'm in the presence of two historians. Glenn, <laughs> well, I just want to uh, echo something that you've said. It seems to me extraordinary uh, to, to frame a narrative uh, in the way that the 1619 Project did, because the least remarkable thing about the history of the United States is, is slavery. It was something that was to be found in the Caribbean. It's all over uh, Central and South America. And uh, in many ways, uh, it's a feature of, of most of history. It's actually a feature of the present, too. I'm always astonished at how much energy goes into discussing past slavery when there's present slavery uh, in many parts of the world that seems to exercise people on the left much less. So I, I think you're, you're right. Of course, there's a question that we began with, uh, which is the tenure question, and was the board right to intervene? And I, I agree with Graham Wood's piece in The Atlantic in which he says, well, we need to know why. You know, what are the reasons uh, for, for doing this? But I think if there's uh, if there's a good reason, it is to cast doubt on the, the scholarly merits of the 1619 Project. And I think it's extremely important for us to do that before it becomes institutionalized as the orthodoxy in American history. And as John says, that's already happening as part of a general shift to inscribe critical race theory uh, into uh, the way in which our educational system works, not only at the college level, but right the way down through our educational system. I mean, I'm in a mixed race marriage. I'm still reeling from the time my son came home and and told me that uh, he'd learned about civil rights. Uh, He'd been studying change makers. And I said, it's interesting. you know, which change maker did you study? And he said, Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I said, he was only six at the time. I said, what did you learn? And he replied, and I quote, that white people are bad. So we have an, an indoctrination problem that is already happening at the, the most junior level of the educational system. Uh, and I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm 
I'm the white guy in the family. It's a it's a difficult thing to hear from from your your mixed race son. I can only imagine. So I want to say a couple of things here. Um, I, I ask myself, why are we getting, I mean, this is not the only thing that's going on in the 1619 Project, the statues that are coming down and all that, to talk about reparations and all of that. Uh, and why? I mean, uh, Black Lives Matter. The narration of police violence, uh, it, it's becoming a part of a, of a, of a discernible pattern, it seems to me, of racialization, critical race theory, which covers a lot of ground, but, and it's everywhere, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, uh, white allies, you know, so something big is going on in the culture, it seems to me. And uh, I'm not sure I've got my mind around it entirely. I wonder, I wonder what you guys think, but I'll, I'll throw something out. We're a half century past 1970. The civil rights movement has been over for a long, long time. The election and uh, service in office of Barack Hussein Obama as president of the United States, quite self-consciously as an assertion of black people having arrived, was a ratification by American politics of the success of the civil rights movement, the canonization of Martin Luther King, notwithstanding the peccadillos and all, uh, a ratification of the success of the transformation of the second-class citizenship of African-Americans into full and equal civic stake in the country. Notwithstanding that, the jails are overrun with Black people. Every place where one of these incidents has happened is unsafe because of the predatory depredations of criminals, most of whom are Black. The achievement gap in schools is stratospheric. Every elite faculty is desperate to appoint Black people. Governments engage in explicitly racially preferential policies on behalf of Black people. And the gaps persist. That's why we're in the 19th century because the 21st century is too hard to face for too many people, because the failures of the post-civil rights era affirmative action, and I could go on like this for a long time because this is my wheelhouse, but I'll just, I'm trying to ask the question, why are they taking down statues? Why are they rewriting the history? Why are we talking about slavery in the freest republic in the history of the planet? And it's because of the failure in the face of the uh, success of the civil rights movement for African-Americans to measure up. I mean, this disparity on the criminal offending side, Charles Murray has got a book coming out. I won't go on about this very long, but this is really very important. Charles Murray has got a book coming out. He calls it Facing Reality. It's Charles Murray-esque. It's very seamlessly prosecuted as a matter of social, quantitative social science. He goes to the data, he does the measurements. He's interested in two things, test scores, he's Charles Murray, and violent crime. And all he's saying is you look at America, you look at the demography, you look at where people live and you measure their racial differences in test scores. I'm not talking about genetics, he says. I'm not, 
I'm just saying the differences are there and they affect people's performance on the job. And there's huge racial differences in criminal offending. These are important facts about our country going forward the next couple of decades, fundamental facts about social organization, politics, and so forth, the health of the country going forward. We had better face them, says Murray. The reason that we're taking down statues and that we're talking about the 19th century is because people cannot face these facts. Well, Glenn, there's sort of a bifurcation, it seems, to one extent. So I, I used to live on the south side of Chicago. Now I live in very white Palo Alto. Uh, and it's clear that a lot of this is a fashion among guilty white people who live in rich, very white suburbs. And then there's a bifurcation in, in, among Blacks. There's a successful Black middle class, which I hope you'll talk about some, and a underclass, both Black and white, which is showing uh, signs of, of you know, just drifting, drifting into worse and worse uh, situations. That seems like three different issues. Uh, it's not clear that a lot of the current stuff is coming from uh, black people in general, as, as opposed to uh, the you know guilty white people who want to uh, foist some new set of ideas on you. Well, I don't know quite what to say about that since I don't have the ethnographic insight into guilty white people. Well, you know what's going on among black people. So how much of the current stuff is coming from the actual desires of black people? Either the the surgery. Oh, oh I class, think there's a lot of diversity, just as you say. I don't have an opinion research to cite, but but there certainly is, you know. Uh, the wokesters don't necessarily speak for the people who go to an AME church and, you know, who are just trying to get their kids to school safely and stuff like that. They're Democrats. Now, these people are going to be Democrats, but they're likely maybe to be pro-life as opposed to pro-choice. And they have a lot of doubts about it. They don't mind the cops. They want more cops, a lot of them. Yes. And many of them look askance at Black Lives Matter and they want to know, follow the money. They're, the question about BLM is follow the money. So I, I, I take that point. Um, but I, I, you know, why is Joseph Biden receiving the family of uh, George Floyd at the White House in uh, acknowledgement of an anniversary of the death of George Floyd? That's not elite, effete, precious white people who are obsessed with being on the right side of history. That's power politics from the White House. That's the Democratic Party trying to drive black people to the vote by scaring the hell out of us that uh, the sky is falling. Excuse me, if that's too partisan, is that too partisan for Goodfellas? <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's the successes and failures of both parties and the Democratic <laughs> Party, certainly in Chicago, that uh, pretended to help black people for years and years and has not done much good for them is, you know, that's that's a fact as facts are. Let me let me get back to um, you guys. I want to ask one more question then. <laughs> because uh, I tend to ask too many, but you, you brought up, I think, the important issue, the issue of the inner city black underclass uh, separated from the resurgent middle class and the continuing troubles they have, perhaps personified by, by George Floyd himself, who despite his tragic death, um, personified many of the struggles that uh, uh, black men face in, in that society. You've, so there's... Uh, You've written about culture versus incentives. And I'm, I'm curious your view, how much of this is uh, the destruction of the black family thanks to the federal government? Uh, how much is not the, you know, as economists, we look to those disincentives, but as uh, larger thinkers, which you are, you look to cultural things, well, cultural things that are also hurting Charles Murray's fish town. The, the uh, white underclass is behaving much in the same way. 
Um, how much of it is, uh, you know, family and youth? Um, the South Side of Chicago, where I grew up, I, I knew many young black kids, and I could tell right away. Um, my wife spoke of two kids she met on the playground who who had cigarette burns on their arms at age six. You can tell this isn't going to end well, no matter how much universal pre-K or, or government programs uh, come out. You, you certainly need intact families, which is both white and black underclass have, have failed. But how much of that is culture? How much of that is government? How, how do we get out of that? Uh, and not just by letting them grow up and, and choosing between prisons and programs. Yeah, well, gee, I guess I'm the guy on the hot seat here, huh? Well, that's what you, I've, I've that's what you know something about. Well, hey, Glenn, Glenn, what I, Glenn, what I would say, I've heard you speak eloquently about yes. outside in and inside out yeah. impediments and obstacles, right? And outside in, I don't think any of us would deny, right? There, there are, yeah. there, there, there is a legacy of slavery. There is a legacy of yeah. de jure uh, segregation and inequality of opportunity. But what you've been able to do, I think, is highlight you know some of the inside out uh, priorities that we ought to have to remove barriers to, 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 to the great promise of America, right? So I, I wonder if you might share some of your thoughts on, on some yeah. of these, these outside in uh, you know, needs for reform and, 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 and collective effort. Okay, thanks HR and thanks John. And uh, I, I, I wanna say a number of different things. So this is not a scientific question that's being asked here at, at one level. I mean, it, it is a issue on which data can be brought to bear the question about the condition of the family, kids out of wedlock and uh, marital instability and uh, child uh, neglect and uh, abuse and uh, social pathology, if one could even say, and about the extent to which the history of the welfare state with incentives encouraging patterns of behavior, and certainly that's gotta be a part of it and so how much? And then also with respect to the larger culture, you know, the uh, effects of the transformation of American attitudes more generally about family life, the advent of gay uh, rights and the, you know, the changes in the roles of women and, and uh, marital things and whatnot, uh, divorces up and, and so forth like that. So I, I think you would want to, whatever cultural argument you would want to tell, you want to nested within uh, the larger dynamic of American culture. I think there are a lot of cultural complicities of one kind or another. Uh, I, I think, for example, the commercial uh, 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 entertainment habits of adolescent white kids in middle-class neighborhoods might have an impact on what rap musician artists decide to put on the tracks that they uh, put out there because they're going to try to appeal to a market, uh, a market which is driven by a white kid's imagination of what a uh, you know, a raunchy black kid would be saying kind of thing like that. So I think you could you could make observations like that. But here's what I'd say. Uh, I'd say I, I join Amy Wax, uh, the law professor at Penn, controversial conservative law professor who says in her book called Race, Wrongs and Remedies. If I step off the curb and a bus driver who's texting and not paying attention hits me and crushes my leg, there's no doubt that I've been victimized just very wrongly by circumstance. But if I want to walk again, I have to go to physical therapy. That, that has, I'm the only person who can do that. And likewise here, you know, the legacies of the uh, post-World War II uh, transformation of the American welfare state and of American domestic culture about, uh, about family life and how that impacts on Blacks, is an external factor. 
But we're the only ones who are in control of how our children get raised. Nobody, no, the, the, there is no doubt a, a million studies in sociology and economics and political science journals about how the uh, violence uh, that you see in uh, urban uh, communities, Chicago, is related to one thing or another, whether it's drugs or it's poverty or it's whatever. Um, I've seen many of these studies. But these kids are making choices about whether or not to take each other's lives. And I, I, I can't, and I'm sorry, I, I answered a very personal register here, help but think that it's what they believe. It's, it's the values that they embrace. They, they're not automata. They're not just driven by uh, like machines. They, they have free will, I want to say. And, and I want to say that the community is responsible for, for uh, a big chunk of that. Who's but this? I'm in very troubled waters here. I mean, somebody help me out because- Well, well I, I, I think you are, Glenn. And I think part of what makes this such troubled water is that I kind of freeze at the very mention of Charles Murray's name. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about a podcast I did the other day when the host, uh, who's certainly not on the left, said, Charles Murray's done a new book and it's really like gone up to the third rail and, and grabbed it with both hands. Wow. So it's not, you know, I'm not going there. I'm not going to have him on. Be careful. So the, the sense of wow. deep unease that, that we feel when we hear Charles has decided to turn to the issue of, of race again is, is, is very profound. Uh, there was a battle royal when uh, we invited Charles Murray to come and speak at, at Stanford back in, in 2018. In many ways, the most unpleasant experience of my academic career was dealing with the fallout from that. And, and you know that this book is going to be, if it's reviewed at all, uh, destroyed uh, by the liberal media because they've spent decades trying to turn Charles Murray into an an unperson and represents him as a quote white supremacist and uh, and a racist. So the the issue has become extremely dangerous, especially for you know three white guys to to discuss. Well, then we're in real trouble here. Yeah, uh, as an intellectual community, this is horrible, horrible, horrible. Not like it's news to me that Charles Murray is a bad word, but a the friggin' book is over the top good. Okay. This is a fellow of the Econometric Society. This is a distinguished fellow of the American Economics Association talking to you. It's seamless. It's a good book. B, Charles Murray is one of the most important observers of American social life for the last half century. The uh, Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, otherwise known as welfare, was basically driven by Charles Murray's 1984 book, Losing Ground, which basically said we had a war on poverty and poverty won. And it raised all the kinds of questions that ended up being dealt with in the legislation of, the, of Clinton's uh, welfare reform uh, policy. The bell curve is still a significant uh, book. I don't know what the citations would say. It's 25 years old. It raises a fundamental question about the importance of human intelligence in social life. It approaches it. Herstein was a, one of the leading uh, 
cognitive, quantitative psychologists of his generation. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying everything in there is right. I'm saying it's important work. Uh, coming apart was a prescient perception into the transformation of American social life in the early part of the, et cetera. And then he's got other books that I could go into. He's an important thinker. Now, to be told that he can't come to Stanford. He came, he came, it should be said he came, but it was the fallout was uh, extremely unpleasant. And the, the, the attempt to get him disinvited was, uh, was I think indicative of, of where we are because the argument against him, which was made to me by students was that he is a white supremacist. And my response was, have you read any of his books? And they had not, but they heard from the Southern Poverty Law Center that he was a white supremacist and that was good enough for them. And so you're right, I agree with you, by the way, I mean, coming apart really was a tremendously important work, which, which applied to the predicament of the white working class, uh, ideas that he previously right. thought would only apply to, to African-Americans. And I think one of the points about that book is it's happening to white working class American, an incredibly important book, but he's become a pariah and he spent his career uh, being vilified. And those who support him uh, remember Andrew Sullivan's experience when he was editing the New Republic. I do, and then he's still catching flack about that. He's still, he basically got fired off of New, Ma New York magazine because the New York Times decided to remind everybody of this. So we are in a very strange predicament. As you say, the data are really hard to get around, when it, particularly when it comes to, to criminality. And yet, what's he, even more important, I think, is the misperception for example, the misperception about the number of unarmed black uh, people killed by the police. I mean, there's some amazing data that show how far, particularly liberals, but it's true across the board, how far people exaggerate the scale of that problem, just as they simultaneously underestimate the, the scale of the, the, the crime problem that you alluded to before. But the reason that we have, I think, a, a such a disconnect between the data and perception is that we daren't talk about this and that to talk about it is to take a huge is to take a career risk which in the atmosphere of, of council culture can be a really major uh, career ending risk I, I don't know what we do about this but i i certainly i have to confess that when i heard about the new book my re reaction was dare i even read this dare i even order this book and dare I even refer to it? And that's how much I've been cowed by the change of culture in our academic life. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that report. Uh, let, I wanna ask HR something. Uh, and that's about McCarthyism and about whether or not you see in the cultural patterns that, uh, that uh, Neil has just been describing any echoes of uh, you know, a similar kind of dynamic in American uh, political history uh, uh, associated with McCarthyism. You know, you know Glenn, I, I do. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this being at Brown University as well. I was with a group of students, which is great. Now we can actually be with students more now in, a, in, a, in an informal social setting. And they shared with me, they said, hey, we, we can't really say what's on our minds because we will get shouted down 
uh, by by the far so left. One of the students kindly uh, wrote a hit piece about you for the Stanford <laughs> Daily. That'll teach you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, it's so funny. I mean, the, the, that particular student wasn't even listening very carefully because I was trying to make you know, use a, the metaphor of of the the myth of the lost cause to say the manipulation of history is dangerous. You know, and and so the 1619 Project you know, is as dangerous as the myth of the lost cause was. But 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 Glenn, what the students are saying is. They can't really voice their political opinions, uh, and they, they would and they would characterize their their opinions as center left or centrist uh, because they will get shouted down uh, by the extreme left. And their assessment was though that that this extreme left is is very small in terms of percentage, but they are so active and they are so loud and they are they are they are so they will so readily label someone as a racist or, or, or some other term of derision and go ad hominem immediately uh, if your views don't conform to that leftist agenda. So, Glenn, I, I smile every time I think of you at Brown University, man. I mean, I, I'd love to hear what your, what your perspective is, because I think it is a grave danger to academic freedom. And there is kind of a, you know, a, a group of zealots, uh, you know, maybe not, not unlike McCarthyites, who are shouting down those who 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 possess views that are uh, you know, that are that are different from theirs? Can I add a question for the economists? Let's turn the tables, HR. Okay. You know, we know history as a discipline is is just like a train wreck at this point, uh, given the way in which uh, critical race theory and uh, social justice and other ideas have have uh, taken over department after department. But what about economics? I mean, this is what I really wanted to get into uh, with. With you, Glenn, I mean, there was a sense, I guess, 10 years ago, I, I look back on and I used to think, wow, there are no holds barred at an economic seminar in the United States. You go to a major economics department and present, you know, you you can, it's like free speech and contact sport combined. And they're kind of mean to each other. They're all mean they, to each other. And everybody kind of gloried in that. And that feels <laughs> like guys that. Get the ethic is we fight hard about the ideas, but not about the person. You're so, wrong. That's, right. That yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Is okay. That I should, that's right. That's right. Uh, is okay, that changing, so, Glenn, John? There's two kind of questions here. I'll let John speak up about economics also. Uh, I want to say about Brown. Uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty uh, hard politically correct over here. I've been in a shouting match with my administration. I'm the one doing the shouting. They ignore me. I'm talking about the president and the provost and the people who are deciding about these things. And I, I think it's just wrongheaded on many levels. And I've been public about it. I denounced the uh, oh, my God, letter that the president sent around uh, back after the George Floyd thing, you know, about systemic racism and all that, which I thought was a lot of nonsense. And I thought, frankly, was a little chilling in that it was signed in lockstep by the entire top administrative cadres of the university. I said, this is a university. First of all, the faculty should speak about substantive matters of intellectual import, not the administrators. But secondly, the administration puts its imprimatur on a, in effect a Black Lives Matter manifesto. That, that's just horrible. So, you know, brown. Brown is brown. Uh, and the uh, students here are uh, very woke and they're very uh, consciously enforcing these boundaries that you're talking about. I taught a course on free inquiry, a seminar with 20 students, self-selected and handpicked because I had many applicants. And we were 20 with a very good TA. And we started with Plato, with the Apology of Socrates. And, and we read the Aurea Pachetica, the Milton. And we read John Stuart Mill. And we read Vaclav Havel. And we read, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, uh, George Orwell and, and we read Glenn Lowry. I happen to have an essay on self-censorship that I'm very proud of. But uh, what, what I'm saying is they were so grateful for a distance and objective reflection on the character of our public dis uh, discourse at the university because they feel cowed in their social lives. They don't want to be a foul of the, of the accepted whatever. And because it's being policed like this, and I think social media goes, you know, is a really important part of this. Um, so uh, they, they were hungry. They were hungry for a breath of fresh air. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm not the only person at Brown University, but I'm, I'm probably one of the few uh, who's, you know, trying to create a space where where you can ask ask some of these questions like who won the election of 2020? Let, let me take this. Uh, I want to follow up on this. One. You're not allowed to mention his name. <laughs> not let me take this one. I, I, I like where Neil's going with this. And I want to go from Brown to national on yeah. the subject of our economics profession and yeah. where it's going. Uh, we're also coming up on the anniversary of the American Economic Association's letter to its members, instructing us on how to think about matters racial. Uh, a reading list was sent out that we should all read. It had Ibrahim X. Kendi on it. It did not have Glenn Lowry on it. it did not have Tom Sowell on it. it. Did not have Roland Fryer on it. it did not have Walter Williams on it. You guys were deliberately ignored. I, I don't think the uh, the uh, the white people penance reading list has been updated in the last year, though. Um, they all pledged that they were going to read these things, and I don't know how how well they're doing on it. But I'm curious on well that that's going on at the AEA. The AEA also our ombudsman ombudsperson, excuse me, said that to unfollow a person of color was now a prosecutable offense within the association. So certainly our our profession, our professional association, is going. I don't want to say hard left, but um, enforcing certain views on these things, neglecting even the writings of actual economists, uh, both white and black on, on such matters. Um, we're certainly going into explicitly racial hiring and college admissions. Uh, most economics departments are getting rid of uh, tests to get in, uh, tests to get out. Um, so where is that going to go? I I'm curious how you see it. I worry about the Clarence Thomas effect that uh, there are many great black economists. One of them is on our screen with us. Uh, but you, you know the effect that, that Thomas so complained about that people just assumed he was an affirmative action hire and, and, uh, and incompetent. Is there also, last question, then you get to sound off on these issues. I sense a generational shift. Um, you, Sowell, uh, well, Friar's young, but the rest are of a certain age. There is a, a yay committee on, on, on these things, which is all um, uh, various minority economists, but all younger who dare not speak your name or, or don't like to speak your name. Is there a generational shift? Where, where's the next Tom Sowell coming from? Okay. Uh, the next Tom Sowell could be white, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he has to be black or she, but that, that's a side point. Uh, let me address the uh, the sort of main issues here. Yeah, I, I saw that reading list recommended by the A. That was scandalous, man. That was that was just scandalous. Uh, so there's a political question here about how the association is run and and who are the committees that are drafting these and, and making these decisions. And uh, you know, believe me, there are black faces on those committees. Okay, I, I, I am not going to get into naming names here. But, you know, we know, you know, I know you, John, probably know who 
I'm the kinds of people that I'm talking about there. So, so there's kind of a party line, you know, Thomas Sowell is this guy. But this uh, is if, if you're black, you have to be leftist. And if you're not leftist, you're not black. Uh, you know, our own country. Yeah, I, I guess that puts, a, that puts it in shorthand. But these, hold on, let me just say this. I'm going to just say it, okay? These people are second rate. They don't publish in the Journal of Political Economy. They don't have Jim Heckman's respect, which is hard to get. They're not Clark Medalist. They don't write down models and estimate them. Okay, they're political blacks. They happen to be economists. They have a shtick, they have an act. Okay, the uh, woke white liberal, you spoke of this earlier, uh, uh, people who uh, are atop the uh, association are cowed by these people. And, and they are doing what they think is uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, you know Thomas Sowell, you know him, he's your colleague. Uh, I know Roland Fryer. He doesn't suffer fools gladly, okay? If all you do is pull down a stock data set from a website and run some OLS or something with a bullshit story to go along with it, he's gonna call you out, okay? And he's gonna say, if you wanna know what's going on with race and police violence, you have got to get your hands dirty collecting the data. And then he's going to go to Houston and he's going to persuade the police department to let him put an army of graduate students into their uh, archives to code up a data set that he's going to then use to actually scientifically address it. Okay. You know what the econometric society is. They're not members of it. So here's my question. My question is not to the black uh, gatekeepers who try to decide what the association can say. My question is to the association, to the Nobel laureates who sit atop our profession. Are they interested in maintaining the standards of excellence? And do they have enough respect for black people to hold us to those same standards? Because that's what's at stake. Um, I was trained at MIT in the 1970s. It was the best department on the planet at that time. I'm sorry, I know some of my contemporaries will say, no, Stanford was better. No, Princeton was better. Chicago. No, Chicago was better. <laughs> but I'm sorry to have to report to you that Franco Modigliani and Peter Diamond and Robert Solo and Paul Samuelson, and, you know, et cetera, okay. Now, back in the day, you had, uh, you had qualifying examinations that were hard. I can remember Paul Krugman, he was a year behind me, saying after one of those exams, damn, I think this is the first one I failed. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, my late wife, Linda, who was in Paul's class, uh, tells that story about him being in there. Stan Fisher had given a, 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 a monetary theory uh, final exam, and, and Paul went up there and said, damn, I think this is the first one I failed, as he was handing his, his book in. But it was hard. It was hard. This is hard stuff. Economics is hard. Economics is not sociology. I'm sorry, uh, I'm talking to Neil now. I'm not talking to John. John knows this. Economics is more like engineering. It's more like applied math. It's more like, I mean, and if you don't master these techniques and whatnot, you're not a serious player. So there's that. 
Well, there's um, the question, do we care about being good anymore, about doing good science, or do we care about who has what job where? And it's easy enough to not care about doing great science. I mean, the bottom, there's a very deep insight, which is um, you can't be racist and be competitive at the same time. And perhaps uh, the, the corollary is you can't be anti-racist and be competitive at the same time. Um, competition is certainly cures all those, which by the way, is maybe you want to talk about that too. Clearly, if we're going to be a society where, where everything is handed out on um, racial or, or ethnic or other bases, then we have to be all protected from competition by the great federal government. Otherwise, uh, those things won't stand. Um, and, you know, so you have a vision here of uh, an old fashioned vision, I would say, of uh, departments that really care about being the best as opposed to caring about um, looking good on other, on other measures, uh, because we're a fairly uncompetitive business and we can get away with it. Uh, well, as someone who's trained in the old school of, you know, when they used to do IO theory and you think about things like this, uh, that sounds like a really interesting research program. This is about endogenous contests and when, when the very currency of the prize is part of what has to be determined. You don't know how you're measuring success and that's part of what's being contested. And, and I think it's very, I think it's very interesting. I mean, sure, there could be a race to the bottom kind of effect. There could be- Look at history departments. <laughs> hey, Neil, I mean, I mean, <laughs> Neil tell, tell us what happens. Tell us how uh, departments can, can lose the edge for looking for quality and, and, uh, and uh, scientific analysis. <laughs> I think it's ex extremely important that people in, in the harder social sciences look at what happened in, in the humanities. I mean, I'm, I'm a kind of uh, bastard child of economics and history. I was an economic historian uh, from the outset, and I watched economic history wither as a subdiscipline as ideas were imported from uh, a whole bunch of different uh, disciplines uh, and, and took history over. Uh, I, I think this can happen in other fields too, and we've almost got to the point where critical race theory has arrived at, at the math department in some universities because isn't two plus two equals four actually some encoding of white supremacy? That The problem, we used to think this would kind of stop at the water's edge when you, you got away from humanities and arrived at, at something with science in the description, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So I think, I mean, the, the key here for me is that academic life, and this brings us back to issues of tenure, is essentially a series of patronage networks. And, you know, that's really how it operates. If a well-organized group makes it uh, a goal to promote its version of the discipline, to advance its doctoral students, to make sure they get the tenure track jobs, uh, there aren't actually great mechanisms uh, to counter that. There aren't that many market forces in reality in academia. If you control the journal, then you control the publications. And if you control the publications, then you are in a very strong position to, to change the direction of, of any discipline. And I'm not sure quite what the checks are on that process that distinguish economics from history. So I want to know what John thinks about what's going on at the journals. I mean, about what's getting in the AER, about what's getting in the Review of Economic Studies, what's getting in the Journal of Political Economy. Is the quality going down? Are pieces being printed 
in these, because these are very highly sought after. I mean, what are they accepting? One in 15 or one in 20 submissions? Uh, are, you know, you're, you're probably reading the journals even more than I am because I'm too busy being a pundit and a podcaster. <laughs> what's, what's going on? Because editors, I thought editors were jealous. I thought they were jealous of their prerogatives. I thought people who, you know, are guarding the portals really do have standards. They're, they're not politicians. There's a, a longer story there, which um, we'll probably do some other time because it has less to do with the uh, political and race things. Oh, and for economics, it's not yet totally political, though coming up with the wrong answer makes it harder and harder to publish. Many other fields, of course, uh, directly say, you know, we're going to count the color, the skin color of the people who are publishing and, and there's quotas on, on who gets published. That that can happen. I think Neil is exactly right. American economics in, in your time and my time uh, was remarkable at in its quest for quality, scientific accuracy as the big competition, and that there isn't a necessarily natural force among universities to do that. Uh, natural forces go to building empires, and um, it, it, the, the whole university system is so uncompetitive that it's remarkable when something takes over that. Well, you know, most European universities were never particularly competitive about we're, we're going to grab Glenn Lowry because he's and give him a big raise because he's writing great stuff. No, no, he wasn't my graduate student, my friend. Uh, so it's, it, it, those things can can fall. Apart. And I, I would interject that the reason I moved to the United States was partly that I'd never encountered such a kind of unmitigated pursuit of intellectual excellence as I encountered when I first attended economic seminars at Harvard and other US universities. It was very appealing to me that it was no holds barred and you didn't have to be nice or clubbable uh, or socially adept to succeed. You just had to be super smart. So it's been sad to watch that cease to be the top priority, uh, which I think has happened. I think that has ceased to be the top priority and it's not uh, unique to, to economics, because I think universities generally are saying we're not actually primarily interested in the smartest people doing the groundbreaking work, regardless of what answers they arrive at. That's no longer our, that's no longer our mission statement at any major university. I'm going to jump in here, guys, because we're getting shorter in time. I'd like to, like to pose one last question. Uh, going back to the beginning of this conversation, Glenn, and that's the idea, if we, if we agree that uh, we're not fans of critical race theory, there's still the question, Glenn, of how racial inequality should be taught in our classrooms. And I'd like to you to give us some guidance, because I look at this and I see an economic component, I see an educational component, a criminal justice component, uh, Neil and HR, the historical arc, there's a sociological component in terms of the Black nuclear family. Uh, but the question is this, Glenn, how would you teach racial inequality, inequality to Neil's son? giving him a baseline introduction to this? And then secondly, how should universities be teaching this topic? Okay, in a short compass of time, let me try to respond. I'm an economist, so I'll respond, you know, pretty much as an economist might respond. I see a demand side and the supply side of the market, and I would want to study both sides. If it's the labor market and we're talking about wages, I'd start with the old saw, you know, uh, black women make 72% cent on a dollar compared to white men or something like that. And then I'd say, well, what would we mean by that? And uh, so on. I'd get them to thinking about the fact that uh, I'd want to control for the quality of the things that were being offered and so on. And there might still be some gap that's unexplained by the of what people are on the supply side bring into the market. And then can I attribute that to the demand side? And then I, you know, so on. So I talk about discrimination 
but I'd also talk about development. The development is on the supply side. I, I talk about behavior. I talk about incentives, you know, um, but uh, I, I'd want to situate it in a, uh, in a larger uh, framework. I wouldn't want to just talk about race and racial inequality. Uh -huh. uh, and I'd also want to get people thinking about uh, why do I care about inequality at all? I mean, to what extent am, uh, are my commitments to uh, liberty and, and uh, you know, free enterprise and property and all of that uh, uh, not, not uh, you know, requiring that, uh, you know, we, we have, that we have an egalitarian, a, a, a totally equal outcome. Hmm. Um, but uh, what do I think about critical race theory and how we teach about race? Uh, it, it strikes me that this uh, 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 woke narrative of uh, systemic racism is, is rife for, for critique. And uh, I, I've done that in some of the things that I've written. Uh, you know, I think it's a bluff and a bludgeon. I've said, I, I think people are daring you to, to really, uh, they, they come and they say mass incarceration is an effective conspiracy to confine black people. I think they're really daring you to point out what the supply side of the criminal offending market looks like. Uh, you mentioned Bill of uh, Sociology, and I think they're daring you to talk about uh, the role of uh, family formation and uh, out of what like birth rates in affecting uh, child development. Um, I'm rambling here. I, I learned a lot from Jim Heckman. I mentioned him earlier, but uh, he's been talking a lot about uh, the development side, about how important uh, early childhood experiences are, about the significance of family life, especially in trying to account for racial disparities. Uh, so I'd want to look into that. Uh, okay, my final question, I'd like all four of you to just briefly answer this if you can. Um, Glenn, um, writing about Brown University and their uh, confronting racial injustice letter, uh, the words that stand out are Brown's promise to uh, always be, quote, fighting for social justice. Uh, so gentlemen, as we're a forward-looking show, why don't each of you just give me your thoughts quickly on just what you see the immediate future for universities when it comes to, quote, fighting for social justice. Where, where is this taking us? HR? Yeah, I think we all ought to fight for the principles on which our country is founded and recognize that our, our country's always been a work in, in progress. And, and I would just draw our listeners' attention to, to Glenn's excellent essay, The Case for Black Patriotism. And I think that I think that we have an opportunity to, in all of our, wherever we are, the four of us, five of us, Bill, to convene Americans for thoughtful, meaningful discussions about how we improve our country, how we remove barriers to the great promise of America, uh, and and do so, I think, consistent, you know, with the principles on which the country was founded, recognizing, you know, that that much of our history is cut against those principles. But hey, you know, we can work together and strengthen our nation. So I would say you know, a positive, a positive message is what we need today. Okay, Neil, fighting for social justice. I would simply say, beware superfluous adjectives. What's wrong with justice? <laughs> when people start to qualify justice, you should study the language of totalitarianism, because whether you look at Victor Klemper or any of the great writers in the English-speaking world, like Orwell, they, if you read them, and you'll confirm this, Glenn, will, will make you alive to those redundant adjectives. They, they are deeply dangerous. Fight for justice by all means, but what universities are here for is actually not to fight for justice or social justice. They're to fight for academic excellence and innovation in all of the different disciplines that, that we study. That's our ultimate goal. John, fighting for social justice. 
As Neil said, we should fight for actual justice. And the way you fight for actual justice is by being willing to confront the facts and different ideas about those facts. There are big disparities. Those disparities might be signs of systemic racism, but that systemic racism might be in the public schools, not in the university admissions department. That systemic racism might be in the welfare program. That systemic racism might be all over the place. Unless you look at the facts and question the narratives, uh, you're not gonna get anywhere on actual opportunity, justice, good words, not made up words like, uh, like Neil mentioned. Okay, and Glenn, I'm giving you the final word. Uh, what do those fighting words fighting for social justice mean to you? They're mischievous. Um, they invite me to forget what happened after 1789 in Paris. They, they invite me not to take cognizance of the consequences of 1917 in Moscow. Horrific crimes have been perpetrated on behalf of Mao Zedong's idea of social justice. Our tradition, the Western tradition, and yes, as a descendant of Africans, I am nevertheless a man of the West, prizes the underlying commitment to liberty and the value of the individual person and creating institutions that allow us to govern ourselves consistent with those liberties being maintained. And we live in a republic which is the oldest to have set down and actually implemented institutions of that kind. So you want social justice, read the Federalist Papers. And Glenn wins that round. Amen. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, and that's going to be it for this episode of Goodfellas. But sure not, we'll be back next week with a new episode, a new topic, and a new conversation. Glenn Lowry, brave man that he is, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Glenn Lowry. That is spelled G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y, at Glenn Lowry. HR mentioned the uh, excellent article he wrote for City Journal. Uh, it's spring 2021 edition, the title of the case for Black patriotism. Go look that up. And Glenn is on Substack, and his website is glennlowry.substack.com. Again, Glenn Lowry is spelled G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y. Glenn, anything else I need to mention? Anything else I need to plug or promote? I do this for Neil and HR when they write books. So here's your chance. No, it's all good. My book is coming. I'll let you know. Sounds good. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, and John Cochran, our special guest today, our Hoover colleague, Glenn Lowry, we wish you your yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.